0: fun this week. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Zephaniah. I bet all of you have just been devouring Zephaniah this week, right? It's one of the minor prophets near the end of the Old Testament, right before you get to Matthew. And so I spent some time in Zephaniah. You might want to spend some time this week. It's only three chapters. doesn't take long to read through. I, I always recommend doing a little bit of work, especially with the prophets, so you understand what's happening. And I I actually probably will quote a little bit, The Bible Project. Uh, They they have, I haven't watched every video they have, but every video I've watched that they've done on books of the Bible, I have been thoroughly impressed. So I highly recommend checking out The Bible Project video, Zephaniah, this week. It's about six minutes. We're going to kind of do an overview, but we're going to hone in. We're going to read. We're going to sit with the last few verses of this three-chapter book. But I want to give you a little bit of context, a little bit of an idea of what Zephaniah is like. It it begins, if you were to read it this week, you'll see the first two and a half chapters are heavy. They're kind of hard to hear. They're ominous. You feel helpless while you're reading them. I was thinking about it this week. It's kind of like those moments when you're, you're tense, And you're holding your breath, you just want want to get through these chapters, it's just the day of the Lord, it's heavy, it's hard to hear, it's ominous, you feel helpless, but then you get to these last, I don't know, 10, 11 verses, and you find yourself breathing again, you find yourself relaxing. I even wonder as we begin this morning, if you can think back, if you can remember a time not maybe it was maybe it was, a, maybe it was a season of life maybe it was just a moment when 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 you were holding your breath it was heavy it was hard it was you felt helpless but then but then but maybe god moved and you noticed you were relaxing and breathing again i was praying just sitting with jesus reflecting and i was i was reminded of a story is quite a few years ago i was in college Coming home for Christmas, my buddy Aaron Badenhop was driving. There were four of us in his little little car, Christmas time in Ohio, snow on the roads, ice on the roads. We're driving along at a pretty pretty safe pace, but still probably 40, 45, 50 on the road. We're doing fine. There's a few cars ahead, a few cars behind. We're kind of spaced out. We've gone over several overpasses, but for some reason, I don't know if it was the way the wind was blowing or whatever, but our next overpass was covered in a sheet of ice that you couldn't see. And so the two cars in front of us, they were just as far enough in front of us, we saw this happen. They hit the overpass, and one spins out to the left, and the other spins out to the right. And I'm riding shotgun, and my whole body gets tense. I mean, I'm holding my breath. I I am not driving. I don't know what we're going to do. I'm pretty sure we're going to smash maybe both of those cars and be the beginning of a pileup on the highway. Well, Aaron's driving. We, We don't slow down in time for the overpass, and so we get on the ice, and I don't even know everything that's going on. I hear him pumping his foot. He's like wrestling with the steering wheel. The car stalls out. And somehow we weave on a sheet of ice around all these cars and come off the overpass. But the car stalled out, and the brakes aren't really working. And so Aaron just pulls onto the shoulder until we coast to a stop. And I look at Aaron, and I mean, I go from tense to just like, I mean, there's just like shock. You know, you've got the adrenaline rush, but you're looking around the car and everybody's fine and I just look at Aaron and I said, "Man, that was amazing. How did you do that?" And Aaron said, "I have no idea what just happened." <laughs> I mean, literally the car stalled, the, the power steering wasn't working and the brakes weren't working. And somehow on a sheet of ice, we just weave through these cars. <laughs> I mean, maybe you've had moments like that where you're helpless and you're holding your breath, but then but then the the, the the helplessness breaks and you're, you're delivered. <laughs> we could say you're saved. I think that's a good way to read Zephaniah. The context of Zephaniah, you can find it. If you want to read, do a little research at home. 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23. It's around the year, let's just say around the year 650 B.C. Right around the days of Josiah. King Hezekiah had been king during the days of Isaiah, so roughly a hundred years, maybe a little less after Isaiah, you have Zephaniah. The book begins by telling us that Zephaniah is a descendant of Hezekiah. So he's he's probably wealthy. He's of the elite class in Judah. He's, He's probably a cousin of King Josiah. He's a contemporary of Jeremiah. And he's a gifted writer. Actually one commentator said Zephaniah is nearer in literary spirit and talent to Isaiah than any of the other prophets. He's gifted and I think some of that is because he's educated. Prophets have no pedigree or credential. They just the only reason they're prophets is because the spirit of God has fallen on them. You don't go to seminary to be a prophet. You don't train to be, you just, the, the Spirit of God falls, and the Spirit of God, Isaiah was in the elite classes, Zephaniah, so I think they were educated, they wrote really well, they were gifted in how they communicated. In this contemporary of Jeremiah, this, this member of the elite class begins because the Spirit of God has fallen on him, he's, he's heard a word of God, he begins to preach, maybe, maybe with Josiah, maybe before Josiah, but, but after Hezekiah, there was there was Manasseh and there was Amon, two really, really bad kings. Two kings that didn't want Israel to be an alternative society that loves God and loves neighbor. They wanted to be great like Egypt. And so they, rather than following maybe what Moses prescribed, maybe following the spirit of David, even Hezekiah, they... They followed Egypt. They replicated the sins of Egypt. And there was a lot of idolatry and a lot of injustice. That's the opposite of loving God and loving neighbor. So after almost 80 years of Manasseh and Amon, Zephaniah, a descendant of Hezekiah, steps on the scene and begins to prophesy. And he's prophesying about the day of the Lord. You'll see if you read it this week. It's about the day of the Lord. He doesn't tell us when it'll happen. He just says the day of the Lord is coming, and there will be a worldwide impact, but it will be prefigured by God's judgment on the proud in Judah. The day of the Lord is a day of wrath and stress and distress. It's You're going to hold your breath. You're going to tense up. You're not going to be relaxed. What we're told is God will not tolerate the horrible things that human beings are doing to each other and to his world. And God's justice is described as a consuming fire that devours evil from the land. It's very intense. Zephaniah says that because of idolatry and injustice, judgment is coming. Sin has consequences. The day of the Lord is on its way and you won't like it. In a sense, the day of the Lord is when the consequences of sin catch up with us. And God is rectifying what we've undone. He's judging evil. And you'll even see as you begin the language, he's he's talking almost about a reversal of creation. It's almost like there needs to be an uncreation so that there can now be a new creation. God's ordered world has become uninhabitable. And so disorder and chaos has descended upon his good world. And Zephaniah is describing how Jerusalem's world will end. He's prefiguring the world's judgment. All the city's institutions will be destroyed for worshiping false gods. The leaders who perpetrated injustice are going to be gone. The economic centers where crooked lending and borrowing took place, gone. All gone with the city's walls. And Zephaniah says an army is coming. Now, he never says who the army is. He just says an army is coming. We know from other parts of the Bible and from history that that army is the Babylonians. And they're going to come in a few decades, and they are going to annihilate the city and exile the people. But as you read Zephaniah, he never talks about Babylon. He doesn't talk about who the army is. Zephaniah, and this is important, he's highlighting God's role in orchestrating the rise. And the fall of Jerusalem. And in a very real sense, that's what gives Zephaniah hope. God is in control. God is orchestrating these things. Jerusalem will not avoid its fate. It cannot avoid its fate. But a remnant will be spared. If the humble repent. We get into Zephaniah chapter 3 and and he's locked in on the Israelites. He's focused on the Israelites. The people of, of Jerusalem, they have not obeyed the Lord's voice. They have not received his instruction. They don't listen to his prophets. They don't trust God. They don't draw near to God in worship. They don't seek his will, and there's a sense that God doesn't recognize. Who are you? They don't bear his image. They don't look like his people, and you get to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8, and there's a, there's a It's right after, I mean, there's a therefore that begins the verse. You expect an announcement of judgment. That's what you expect. You're tense. You're holding your breath. You're waiting for it. And instead, you find an imperative, a command. God says, wait for me. God says, be patient. Now, he's talking to the humble in the midst of all the proud, in the midst of all the corrupt, God is speaking, Zephaniah is speaking to the humble who are, who are prepared to find their refuge and security in God on the day of the Lord. After Zephaniah has announced impending judgment for the wicked elite in Jerusalem because of their idolatry and their injustice, their inability to love God and love neighbor, Zephaniah now turns and ends his book with attention toward the humble Who are waiting for God to act so that's the context but I want to ask before I read these verses I want to ask how many of you are humble and waiting for God to act how many of you are waiting how many of you are not thinking too highly of yourselves but you're waiting for God if that's you this morning then what I'm about to read is written to you. Zephaniah's prophecy is for you. It's to the humble who are waiting for God to act. In the midst of evil and corruption, waiting for God. So Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. Zephaniah says in God speaking, Then I will purify the speech of all people so that everyone, who everyone, can worship the Lord together. Again, this is a reminder that when God's judgment comes, when the day of the Lord comes, it's not just for the sake of punishing, it's always for the sake of restoration, of redemption, of purifying, of cleansing God's good earth of evil. This is to, to purify, to heal and transform the rebellious nations into one purified family. God is going to find a way to bless the nations. He promised it to Abraham in Genesis 12, and he's going to find a way. It's almost an undoing, a reversal of the Tower of Babel. And I do think in many ways we see the fulfillment in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. God is going to purify the speech of all people so that we can worship the Lord together. Verse 10, my scattered people who live beyond the rivers of Ethiopia will come to present their offerings. God is going to gather, we'll see this as we get to the end, he's going to gather his people and bring them home. Verse 11, on that day, you will no longer, listen to this, if you're here this morning and you're humble and you're waiting on the Lord, on that day you will no longer need to be ashamed your shame, your guilt, it will linger no longer, for you will no longer be rebels against me. You will be shaped by God's love. You will trust him. You will live as Jesus lived. You will you have no desire to return to your former ways of life when you, will, you were lost. You, you are a part of the afflicted and lowly people who are humble and have become the remnant. You will display God's character. You will do no injustice. You will speak no lies. And because we we say this, because we read this in the New Testament, we love because God first loved us. We forgive because God first forgave us. So we become the people who imitate that God, and we become the people who are the first to say, I love you. We don't wait for people to say, I love you. We are the first to say, I love you. We become the people who are first to say, I forgive you. Because we're no longer rebels. We've learned from God. We're humble. God says, I will remove all proud and arrogant people from among you. There will be no more haughtiness on my holy mountain. Those who are left will be lowly and humble for it is they who trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will never tell lies or deceive one another. They will eat and sleep in safety. And no one, does that sound like good news? No one will make them afraid. And then verse 14, sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem. God's people are delivered from both fear and fearfulness. And now they are renewed. They are renewed for action. They are freed for activity. They are saved to serve. We keep reading. Verse 15. For the Lord will remove his hand of judgment, and he will disperse the armies of your enemy. And the Lord himself, the king of Israel, hear this, this is Zephaniah. 650 years before Jesus, Zephaniah says, and he has no idea how true this is and what it'll mean, but this is what he says, anointed by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Spirit, the Lord himself, the King of Israel, will live among you. And when that happens, when the King of Israel, the Lord himself, lives among you, at last your troubles will be over How many of you say amen this morning? My troubles will be over. And you will never again fear disaster. On that day, the announcement to Jerusalem will be, cheer up, Zion. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Have you heard that anywhere else in the Bible? Don't be afraid. Heaven is always coming to earth and saying, don't be afraid. And then verse 17, I love, I, I, I hung out in verse 17 this week. The Lord your God is living among you. He's living among you, and he's a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. And listen to this. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Now, I'm, I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning, and you'll see why when I get down to verse 20. But there's a little asterisk next to with his love, he will calm all your fears. It's more literally, he will be silent in his love. And there's this pretty cool contrast at the end of verse 17. God will be silent with his love. And at the same time, he'll be rejoicing over you with joyful songs. And I kind of was, I've been leaning into the silence of God this week. spent a lot of time dwelling upon what it means that God will be quiet with me with his love. God will be quiet with you with his love, and he will quiet you with his love. This king who will be with you, who will live among you, will turn disgrace, suffering, and alienation into an experience of honor, blessing, and the presence of God. And I drove out to be with other pastors in our denomination on Thursday. On the way out, I listened to a sermon just to worship God. And on the way home, I listened to a podcast. And I won't go into what the podcast was about. But at one point, the the person was talking about anxiety. And just talking about how much anxiety is a function of community. And, I mean, I don't know when the podcast actually even was. But they were using this language, which is always interesting in the midst of a pandemic, and anxiety is contagious. And I was thinking about it. It's true. The more I'm around anxious people, the more I pick up that anxiety. The more I'm anxious, the more I pass that anxiety on to others. But I was thinking about how God will quiet me with his love, and I'm, there is no anxiety in my God. There is no anxiety in Jesus. <laughs> and and I, was, I, I so I've been And we talk about this actually a lot in in a lot of our discipleship pathways, our Sunday schools, our small groups. I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But I've been trying to lean in to Jesus this week. One of the ways I do that, and I, I think I've shared this before, but I have a lot of little mini prayers that I pray when I need to. And one of the prayers I like to pray is from Psalm 46, verse 10. I actually prayed this with Jay last night before bed. Actually, Jay said, Dad, do the be still prayer. Do the be still prayer. I said, let's do that. So what I'll do, Psalm 46.10, the psalmist writes, be still and know that I am God. So I just pray that. Be still and know that I am God. I did that this week. I, I felt the anxiety. I don't know. Did you feel the anxiety? I felt the I felt. I don't know that I did the best job. I felt the I was, I caught anxiety this week. I was tense. I was holding my breath. So I had to keep pausing and leaning into Jesus so he could quiet me with his love so that I could be gentle and trusting. I I just pray, be still and know that I am God, and I remind myself that's where my hope is, that's where my trust is, and and I'm just quiet. Sometimes I try to be calm enough to hear myself breathe. And then I pray, be still and know that I am. And as I do that, I'm remembering, I'm remembering Exodus and Moses and the burning bush and the revelation of my God. He is the great I am. And I'm thinking of all these places in the Gospels where Jesus says, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am. I am. I am. And I'm reminded that's who my God is. Be still and know that I am. And I breathe. And I'm quiet. And then I pray, be still and know. And I was thinking about that this week. There's so much I want to know and I don't know. Oh, my goodness. You guys ask me. I don't know. But what I do know is Jesus is Lord. I can bank my house. I can bank everything on that. And so well, I don't, there's a lot I don't know, but I know Jesus is Lord. I know he's at work. I know he's orchestrating history. I know that he's working good. And so I just rest in that and I let God quiet me with his love. Again, I, I try to hear myself breathing. Be still. Be still. Just rest. i quiet. I'm trusting. I'm trying to learn this posture of prayer that isn't reactive. I want to react. I want to panic. I want to tense up. I want to hold my breath. But, but I can keep breathing. I'm relaxing. And then, I, you know, you can see I'm just slowly taking words off. And then I just I end with B. Be, just be, and I remind myself that life is a gift, that every day is a gift. It's not a game. Thank you, Jesus, for another day. Would I seize it with joy? Would I I see the... I didn't take every day this week as an opportunity. I didn't. So I'm learning, and I lean into Jesus. I I pass that prayer. We'll, We'll end the sermon this morning with that prayer, but I pass that on to you as a way of dealing with all the anxiety Don't pass it on. Don't catch it from other people. Go to your healer and let the love of God quiet and calm you. (laughs) And then let's read these last few verses. This is what God says. I will gather you who mourn for the appointed festivals. I mean, there's a sense that every day with Jesus is a festival. (laughs) You will be disgraced no more. Now, evil will be dealt with. That's why the day of the Lord is good news. I will deal severely with all who have oppressed you because I've come to deal with the proud and the haughty, but I've come to save the remnant, the humble, and I will. I will save the weak and helpless ones. I will bring together those who were chased away. I will give glory and fame to my former exiles, wherever they have been mocked and shamed. And then you'll see how I landed on this verse for our series on home, verse 20. On that day, I will gather you together and bring you home again. On that day, I will gather you together and bring you home again. I will give you a good name, a name of distinction among all the nations of the earth. I will restore your fortunes before their very eyes. Before your eyes, you will see the mighty deeds of God. And just in case you wanted to doubt it, Zephaniah ends with this from God, I the Lord have spoken, right? amen, so may it be. This is what God says, the kingdom is coming, the Lord is the agent who is going to bring about this blessing, he's restoring, he's purging, he's regenerating, he's vindicating, he's healing, he's gathering, he's transforming, he's exalting, and he is fulfilling, and he's going to sing and delight and rejoice over us, but he's also going to be silent in his love. which We've talked about this before, but if you think about how Jesus talks about his kingdom coming, it always comes quietly. In the parables, Jesus says the kingdom is like a seed being sown. The kingdom comes as loud as a seed being sown. The kingdom is as loud as bread rising, a shepherd searching for the lost sheep. The kingdom of God is more like the sound of a forest growing in quietness and trust. But then it breaks forth with a cheerful noise, the celebration of a festival. A lost son comes home. It's Christmas Day and there's laughter and carols and joy and excitement. That's the kingdom. Zephaniah envisions a day when Yahweh will be king. There will be no more bad kings like like Manasseh and Ammon. And somehow, Zephaniah doesn't know how or when, but somehow God will be king in the midst of his people. Which, of course, we're Christians. I hope verses like that make you think of John 1.14 when John writes that the word of God, the word, God himself, God became flesh and dwelt among us, lived among us, the king came when Jesus comes, salvation comes. When Jesus come, g- comes, God lives among us. Salvation is in many ways the fulfillment of God's purposes in spite of the damage evil does in God, to God's creation. Salvation is what happens when God lives among us. And Zephaniah says salvation will swallow up our sorrows, sweep away our troubles, and we will fear no more. The word became flesh, and God is now living among us. What does the resurrected Jesus say at the end of Matthew's gospel? Lo, I am with you always. I live among you always, to the end of the age. Zephaniah tells us this is what God will do and say when He lives among us six hundred years before Jesus. He envisions God will speak to us and say, "I will gather together those who were chased away. I will glory and I will give glory and fame to the outcasts wherever they were mocked and shamed. I will gather you together and I will bring you home." So think about the ministry of Jesus. What did Jesus do? Well, it seems to me he gathered together those who were chased away from home, from synagogue, and from temple. He went to the lepers, the tax collectors, and the sinners. And you could say that wherever Jesus went, there was a festival. We've talked about this before. Wherever Jesus goes, it's jubilee. Wherever Jesus goes, it was a homecoming celebration. Jesus went out and he brought people home in a variety of ways. You can Read this more accurately or closely later in the week, but I was just flipping through the Gospel of Luke. There's so much homecoming in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 5, verse 12, Jesus is going to meet a man with an advanced case of leprosy, someone who is an outcast, an outsider. And this man, with quiet trust, with humility, is going to say to Jesus, If you are willing, you can heal me. You, even though it's thought that I will corrupt you, I believe that. You are so holy, you will make me clean. And Jesus reaches out and he touches this unclean man and he says, I am willing, be healed, and the man is cleaned. And Jesus sends him back into the worshiping community. Here's a man who's holding his breath and he's tense, and then Jesus touches him and he can breathe again and he's relaxed. In verse 17 of chapter 5, he's going to heal a paralyzed man. Your sins are forgiven. Stand up and walk. Literally in verse 24, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. Return to your home. Chapter 5, verse 27, to the tax corrector, Levi, Matthew. says Jesus says to, to Matthew, to Levi, follow me and be my disciple. So he trusts. He gives up. He, he, gives up, he, get, he gets up. He leaves everything. He follows him. In verse 29, it says that Levi went home and held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. (laughs) It's just this party. There's all this homecoming all around Jesus. Or how about Luke chapter 7, verse 36. We're in the home of a Pharisee now. And there's a sinful woman in this home, and she's not really welcomed there by anybody, but Jesus. In fact, everybody wonders, why is this woman anointing the feet of Jesus? And Jesus begins to tell a story of love and forgiveness. And he forgives this woman. The sense of, go and sin no more. You've been healed. You've been changed. You've been saved. You've been redeemed. How about Luke chapter 8, verse 26? This is interesting to think about. They arrived in the region of the Gerasenes on the other side of the Lake of Galilee. So I want you to think about this, and I'll use this language intentionally. But there's a man who's possessed by demons. He's been demonized. Jesus leaves his side and goes to the other side to someone who's been demonized. Someone who the text says has been homeless and naked, living in the graves. And Jesus is the story of the legion, the demons and the pigs. But Jesus encounters this man. He goes to the other side, to someone who's been demonized. And he loves him and heals him. In verse 38, the man who had been freed, freed from the demons, wanted to go with Jesus. But Jesus says, no, go home. Go back to your home and tell everyone what God has done. The Gospel of Luke again and again is a story. Even Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus says, I'm coming to your home. We're going to clean up your home, Zacchaeus. We're going to change your life. This is what God does. It's a big celebration of homecoming. Zephaniah says, I will gather you who mourn for the appointed feast. You will be disgraced no more. I will deal severely with all who have oppressed you. I will save the weak and helpless ones. I will bring together those who were chased away. I will give glory and fame to my former exiles wherever they have been mocked and shamed. And on that day, I will gather you together and bring you home again. When God lives among us, that is what happened with Jesus. God has lived among us. And maybe the clearest expression of our homecoming comes with Jesus on the cross. And Jesus, in his own words, is describing what is going to take place when he is lifted up, when he is crucified, when he is on the cross and lifted above the earth. In John 12, 32, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. Before that, he says, the time for judging this world has come. The day of the Lord has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. Evil will be dealt with the day of the Lord. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. Jesus is here. He's among us. He's with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. And he's gathering us together. And one of our ways of gathering together, and one of the ways we talked about is leaning into Jesus in prayer. That's what I talked about with quietness. But one of the other ways that we experience the presence of God is is through this connection that you and I have together in Christ. One of the ways we know the nearness that God is here, that Jesus is with us, that our King has come, is through the lives of others who are on the journey with us. Sometimes we forget that Jesus is among us, but he is, and sometimes we need to gather together to remember it. I've said this before, but I do believe that almost everything is bearable if we can do it in the presence of close and trusted friends. If we can endure it together, we can get through it. So I'm going to end my time here with the sermon. I, what I want to do is highlight some of the things that we're doing as a church that I think are critical and important for us to grow in Christlikeness, to experience the presence of God, to allow Jesus to gather us together so that we know our true home. The first is our Sunday school classes. They're going to start, well, Sharpen started this week. Sharpen is for our college-age students. And if you're here today, if you're one of our college-age students, I will tell you, I look back at my journey, I really started to come alive. I really started to know the presence of Jesus. I really started to come home in college because I was with a group of people my age who were on fire for Jesus. That's such a a, a sweet time in my life because I was awakening to Jesus, and a lot of it was because I was was on a journey with others who were excited about Jesus. Sharpen is a great place for those of you at that point in your life. Take advantage of it. We have three Sunday school classes, and I have a sign-up, but we told you we brought the lobby out on this table right over here, and if you're at home online, you can email about this, but but we have Sunday school, and we're going to be talking about things that I think are, are really important. Basics of the faith that help us come back home. One of our classes is going to be specifically on prayer. Talking with God. Learning how to speak to God and communication. One of our, one of our classes is going to be on spiritual disciplines. I've said this often, but spiritual disciplines are one of the main bridges... But take what we know to be true in our head and bring them down into our hearts. It's an important class to lean into spiritual disciplines. How do we do what Jesus did? And one of our classes is on Psalm 23. I think most of you know how important Psalm 23 is to me. You cannot spend too much time in Psalm 23. So sign up, sign up, email me, let me know if you want to be a part of Sunday school. If we're outside, we're going to try to do Sunday school at 8.30 in the morning. And if we're inside Sunday School, we'll run concurrent with our services, and all that information is in the bulletin. But again, if we're outside next week, come at 8.30, join our Sunday School classes. We also have small groups that I think are really important. What we're going to be doing is really focusing on the life of Jesus together, looking at the Gospels. Again, you can sign up. You can see the small groups that are available. You can reach out to me. You can email me or or our leaders, maybe our leaders are inviting people, but join a small group. With all of our groups right now, we're really leaving it up to, lead, to the leader to decide where you're meeting and how you're meeting in the midst of the pandemic, so talk to your leaders, Sunday school, small group. Some people try hybrid, some people are online, some people are outside, some people are inside. You just got we're going to let each group handle it, it's too much to try to, and each leader I think is going to do so with great wisdom and love, we're trying to. And then the last thing, which you can sign up on the small group sheet as well, is Formed. Formed is our discipleship pathway that I teach. It's going to be Wednesday nights, beginning September 29th. We've got a few weeks until then, but if you're interested in some of what we talk about in terms of our discipleship pathway, those are just opportunities, ways ways to take seriously this journey, this homecoming, this party, this festival These are trying times, but if we do it together, we can get through anything. I really do believe it. So let's let's pray. We're gathered together, and we're going to lean into the quietness of God, and then we're going to sing. But if you would quiet your hearts and quiet your minds, we're just going to sing through Psalm 46, verse 10. Pray through Psalm 46, verse 10. God, would you meet us? We confess together, we say, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. be still and as i as i say be just allow yourself to breathe all that anxiety all that pent up emotion all that confusion all holding your breath just relax and breathe because you have nothing to fear Jesus has come to set you free from your sin, to change your life, to take what's broken in you and put you back together and make you whole. Jesus has come to to free you from your shame and your guilt. Yes, we can acknowledge what we've done wrong, but we never question our value knowing that God gave his life so that we could have life. Would you put us back together and make us whole? And would you give us friends for this leg of the journey, Jesus, so that we're not alone? In your name we pray. Amen.